Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and welcome to a chain. I hope this episode makes you think about reinvention, because we're all going to have to do it. I was reading a piece on Medium.com the other day by Yuval Noah Harari. He's the best-selling author of the new book called 21 Rules of the 21st Century. A major point he makes is that there will be no room for stability in the future. The future is a place where nothing is going to be constant. Maybe that's why one of the questions Jeff Bezos likes to ask is, what's not going to change? Listen to Harari. If you hold on to some stable identity, job, or worldview, you risk being left behind as the world flies by you with a whoosh. Given that life expectancy is likely to increase, you might subsequently have to spend many decades as a clueless fossil. To stay relevant, not just economically, but above all socially, you'll need the ability to constantly learn and to reinvent yourself, certainly at a young age like 50. So that's what this episode is about. And more, because this episode is with a guy who lived this. Chip Conley. Chip's got his own book coming out today. It's Tuesday. It's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. You'll get the full landscape once our conversation starts, but just a little background. When he was in his mid-twenties, Chip bought a no-tell motel used by pimps and prostitutes in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. This was back in the mid-80s. And he turned it into a boutique hotel called The Phoenix. Some smart decisions turned The Phoenix into the place where bands stopped when they came through town to perform. And the rise of The Phoenix led to many other hotels that turned into a chain called Joie de Vivre. In fact, Chip had 52 of them about 20 years later. He was at the top of his game, and then, well, that's why you got to listen to the podcast, so you can find out. The important thing is that his reinvention turned him into a mentor to a young guy named Brian Chesky. Brian had just started Airbnb when they met, and what you've got in the story of their coming together, a merging of elder and up-and-comer, is a recipe for success. It's a recipe for success for you. If you're younger, it'd be wise to seek out a mentor who can give you years of experience in a single conversation. And if you're older, it'd be wise to seek out somebody young to teach. Because when you do, you're going to put fresh eyes on this new world that's coming fast. I went through a similar experience a few years ago when I met a young guy who dropped out of college, Alex Benayan, he was trying to write a book about the meaning of success. I mentored him through that book, three nights a week, hours a night, for years. And I was very proud to see that book, The Third Door, become a national bestseller. But here's the thing. If I hadn't helped him, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. You wouldn't be here in this podcast because our friendship made me see the world from a young person's perspective and it transformed me 
from writer into speaker and podcaster. And who knows where all this has taken me. So I'm convinced that Chip and Yuval Noah Harari are right, no matter who you are, no matter what your situation, you need to at least be thinking about reinventing yourself down the road. You got to be thinking this way when you're 22, 32, 42, 52, or 92. And if one person out there takes this episode to heart, I will consider it a huge success. But I have a feeling that many people are going to be touched by it. Thank you to the sponsors who got this podcast off the ground, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter, for making my reinvention possible, along with my pal Tim Ferriss, who pushed me in this direction. Let's see where this episode can take you by going straight to Chip Conley. Thank you. Thank you, Cal. For we got coming back. Here. We got, <laughs> you know what? This is a definite upgrade from our last conversation. And it's the first time that I'm actually grateful that technology bewildered me, befuddled me, knocked me down because we did our first conversation over Skype. And throughout the conversation, I kept hearing this like clicking. And, and I wasn't tap dancing or anything like that. No. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I, I have my suspicions. It's going to do me in again. And it did. But the best part was we had a great conversation. And afterward, I started having conversations with four or five other people about our conversation. Yeah. And now I have so many more ideas. So this is going to be... We got the upgrade on the beach. Yes. And we're going to have an upgrade in the conversation. Wow. All right. See, maybe the theme here is you, you wait a little bit longer in life and things just upgrade. And, you, you know, you thought it was getting worse with time, but maybe it gets better with time. That's the whole theme for this episode. Yeah. So, and here's the thing. What, one of the things I recognize is we often have moments in our life that tell us, you've got a choice here. You can either cling to where you were at this moment or where you were before and just be determined to ride it out, or you can let go and you can move to wherever the river of life is gonna take you. And so I want to start with that moment in your life. You're 50 years old. You're in St. Louis. I was 47. Oh, you're 47. I'm yeah. sorry, you were 50. It was 10 years, years ago. Right. 10, years, 10 ago, years ago. And I'm 57 now. So right. this is interesting, Cal, because just this morning, just before you got here, I had breakfast with a guy named Matt Polson, who's based here in L.A., who had a flatline experience two and a half months ago. And he was out for four and a half minutes without a, without a heartbeat. And he lived to, to talk about it. And so we just had brunch. And I've never met with him before. And partly because, gosh, you have a flatline experience, as I did on stage in St. Louis after giving a speech. 
and it's a, you know, it's a life altering experience. And so you want to share it with someone else. So my well, story set, was set yeah. it up cinematically yeah. so we could all see it. Like we're watching you on a movie yeah. screen, a big movie screen. Big movie screen is that I was, um, in, I was in 47 years old. I was running a company called Joie de Vivre Hospitality, second largest boutique hotelier in the U S I'd founded the company 22 years earlier. I didn't want to do it anymore. It had been my calling until the light switch didn't have a dimmer. It went straight from, you know, uh, you know, on to off. And I had started writing books and I was giving a speech in St. Louis, but I had a broken ankle and a bacterial infection in my leg. So I was- How'd you break the ankle? Broke the ankle playing baseball at Gavin Newsom's bachelor party. He's Gavin was the mayor of San Francisco at that time. He is soon to be the governor of California and I was his mentor. And I'd been his mentor for 10 or 12 years uh, as an entrepreneur and then he became mayor. So you are right at this point where you step on that stage. You're at the top of your game. I'm at the top of the game, at my game I, although I do have a broken ankle and a bacterial infection in my leg. So right. But I mean, outside of that temporary physical yes. setback, you, you basically, and I'll go back to the start in a second, but yeah. you basically started a hotel chain yep. with one property in yeah. the tenderloin of San Francisco and grew it to what, 52? 52 boutique hotels, over right. the course, yeah. And you, it was always your childhood dream to write a book, yeah. and now you're an author. Now I'm an author and I'm giving speeches and I'm loving it. I love the idea that maybe maybe I've evolved and I was, a, I was this uh, boutique hotelier who created an interesting company, but I was ready to do what was next, but I felt stuck. And at that time in August, 2008, I was at a point where I could see the Great Recession coming. I didn't want to be part of it, you know, with my company anymore. Uh, I had a long-term relationship ending. I had a foster son going to prison wrongfully. I had a close friend who had committed suicide. His name was Chip, strangely, same name I have. All that had happened, and then I end up on stage and give a speech. This is interesting because at the same time that you're at the top of your game business-wise. Correct. I mean, putting aside the upcoming recession, which you didn't know. I didn't you, cause. You could have a, a vibration that yeah. was coming, but you didn't know what was going to happen. You have worked all your life, and basically this is, you're at the high point. I'm at the high point of my game, and I'm. I gave a speech, crowd loved it, and I sat on stage signing books. After the speech, the second woman came to me and she's an African-American woman and she looks at me and she says, you're awfully white. And I didn't know what she meant. And that's the last thing I remember. And it was, I was white because I was about to go unconscious in my chair, which I did. I slumped in my chair. They put me on the ground. For about three minutes, I was out unconscious. Um, I came to, I had no idea where I was. And here I am in St. Louis. I don't have a hand, I don't have someone with me, like a, an assistant or anything like that. I'm with this collection of people who all they know me is I'm this guy who came to give a speech on stage. And now I'm, you know, unconscious uh, after the speech. Did uh, they get you straight to Barnes Hospital emergency room? They, what happened was the, uh, the, uh, mer the paramedic showed up. And when the paramedic showed up, they put heart monitors on me and I was on a gurney. And that's the first time I went flatline as they were about to take me out to the ambulance. Um, so like, your heart has stopped My beating. heart stopped for about five seconds. They didn't get the paddles out fast enough, uh, such that my heart did start again. But on the on the ambulance ride, 
um, I kept going out and they, at that point, had to paddle me. And I don't, when I say paddle, I don't mean on my rear end. I mean, I mean the paddles that, you know, that they shock your heart back to life. And um, uh, yeah, I was at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Uh, in the emer- you, you know, the amazing thing is, yeah, I used to work in the emergency room at that hospital. You're kidding. No. Why? No. I am, li- I was at the time licensed as emergency medical technician. Oh my God. And well, I feel much better now <laughs> in case anything goes wrong. In this <laughs> but I, I, I can literally, I, I picture in my head that emergency room, and I know how you'd be coming in. I know what the, the rooms, one of them, which you'd be going. Gosh, I was in the emergency room. They cut my, they cut my clothes off of me. Um, they said, "Are you a marathon runner?" I said, "Why are you asking?" Because your heartbeat is so slow, you can't stay conscious. I was like, no, I'm not, a, I'm, you know, so next thing I was unconscious again, you know, trying to answer that one. I'm fine. I can't, you know, I kept going out and then sometimes I'd go flatline, sometimes I wouldn't. And by that, you know, later in the day I was in the ICU and then that night I was in a, a you know, a, a room by myself with Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl's book with me because it had been in my briefcase, not even my briefcase, in my backpack. I don't have a briefcase. I just carry a little backpack with me wherever I go. And so I was reading... Man's Search for Meaning. And that's one of the deepest books written of all time. It's about a Holocaust survivor describing his experience. Yeah. And about how meaning is the fuel of life. And so that night, I'm in the, you know, this room reading a a book about meaning and the fuel of life, (laughs) not able to sleep very well. And uh, my dad shows up the next day and he says, we're getting you back to San Francisco. And and I said, no, you know, on this tour, I was going to go give a bunch of speeches also in Toronto as well as in Houston. Those folks in Houston booked me a year in advance. They have 400 entrepreneurs in a room. I want to, it's a half day thing. I want to go do that. This is two days from after my flatline. And he, he said, you know what? Let's do it. And everybody else in my life was like, what the hell are you doing? But two days later, I was in Houston giving a talk uh, related to my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. On Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, I was barely on the on the pyramid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I went to Houston and my dad, after giving this talk, said to me, because he, st- he stayed in the back of the room, just watching me like a hawk to make sure that I didn't like all of a sudden you start, know, start, start having a seizure or something. Right. And at the end of the talk, he said, I came to St. Louis to make sure you didn't die. I now see how you want to live. We have to figure out how to extricate you from this identity you've had as the CEO of this company you started 22 years ago. Because he had been saying, you know, stop being a, you know, a wimp. You know, this is you, you, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're doing a great job. You're at the top of your game. This one is of the what things I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting is that the world is going to tell you to keep doing it even when something inside of you says no. Now, of course, something inside of me said no to the point where I had a flatline experience. And I, it was like a divine intervention of saying, yeah, let me raise my hand and say, I don't want to do this anymore. The fact that my dad, two days later, could see me give my four-hour talk and then workshop that I was doing with these entrepreneurs, he says, you know, I, I, I want, didn't want you to die. That's why I'm here. But I, now I see how you want to live. We have to figure out how to get you out of and extricate you from this company that you've created and this identity that is completely affixed to how people see you and how you see yourself. And so two so years later, I, two days after yeah. this, you knew, okay, there's a big change coming. Yeah, 
I knew it beforehand. I knew it beforehand and I had even, um, there's an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. I was in it and I had a group, my forum, and I'd been for the prior few months saying, in weird ways, I'm hoping for a cancer or a car crash. Literally said that to them, partly because I said, I want an excuse for how I can shift out of what I'm doing here. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a writer. I want to you know, go out and give speeches. So weirdly, weirdly, then I break my ankle. I have a bacterial infection in my leg. I have an antibiotic. Be, be careful I, what you wish for. Well, and the, ultimately the way they explained it was that I had probably an allergic reaction to the antibiotics. And, okay. But So let's just take this briefly back to the beginning. So if sure. this is a movie and that was the opening scene, yeah. let's just show the viewer yeah. where you were as a kid and quickly take it through the process yeah. of establishing that boutique hotel chain and getting to the top of your game. Yeah. So you grew up in Long I grew Beach? Up, grew up in Long Beach um, and uh, loved it. I was a curious white boy. I, now, now I know the whole story because you told me the last time we yeah. talked. The amazing thing is yes. you started a restaurant in your own house I, I did. when you were a kid. I was 12 or 13 and I, you know, I've always been a host. And I wanted the neighbors to come over and eat in my little ice cream sundae shop. And uh, yeah, so I did that. It lasted three days. Didn't do all that well. Um, but it, it told you yeah. that you had a leaning toward hospitality, hospitality of some sort. It did. It did. Even, even when I was a kid, uh, I, we, our, we, we had the classic... Um, that that Ford station wagon with the the, the wood su paddling on the oh, side. I love you remember those? those? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't see those too much anymore. Well, no. we would go off on our with our triple A guide and stay in motels all over the, the the west. And I would always write a review of each little motel we'd stay <laughs> oh, in. So oh, long story man. short is I not only with you the restaurant, but you were as a guide well, as well. Yeah, exactly. So I uh, ended up going from this little in, inner city or big inner city high school to Stanford and then Stanford Business School and uh, decided I wanted to focus on real estate. I did. But at age 25, on my 26th birthday, I wrote a business plan to write, to start a boutique hotel company. This is the mid-1980s. Boutique hotels had just gotten off the ground in the U.S. And I said, you know, I want to take my real estate background and apply it to this more creative uh, spirit behind what a boutique hotel could be. I called the company Joie de Vivre, very impractical name for a company, but it means joy of life. I love the fact that our mission statement and our name were the same. And I bought this motel in the Tenderloin um, that was, you know, full of Vinny and his girls. Um, now, now explain what the Tenderloin is. I, I got people listening in Mongolia, yeah. in Kenya, Ethiopia. They may not know what the Tenderloin is, so they know San Francisco. But explain the Tenderloin and what your place looked like and who Vinny and his girls were. So the Tenderloin is a neighborhood you don't walk through, you run through it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not all that safe. And you know, I, I like it, but it's a, it's a dodgy neighborhood. It's a, it's a, it's not, it's sort of, um, it's, it's a little scary. So, um, I bought a 1950s motel that was a pay by the hour motel. So for those of you who don't understand what that means, it means that people would come and they would, instead of paying for a nightly rate, they would pay an hourly rate, which means usually they're either doing drugs or, you know, um, prostitution sex in the rooms. That's what I bought at age 26. Not because I wanted that business, 
but because I wanted to actually turn that into a rock and roll hotel. So I so, called so it the now Phoenix. You, yeah. you call it the Phoenix so it can rise from, from the, the ashes. ashes. Yep. And so now Vinny and his girls show up at the hotel. What do you tell them? Well, Vinny, to be clear, Vinny and his girls means Vinny's a pimp and his girls are the prostitutes and they're used to doing their business in my place. And I pretty much gave them a list of four other pay-by-the-hour motels or hotels nearby where they could do their business from now on because I said, we've ch you know, our, our hourly rate is the same as our nightly rate now, which means we don't have an hourly rate. So what, Vinny? I'm your biggest corporate account. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know... I I said, Vinny, you've got four other choices, you know? And I think the fact that I gave him some choices was being respectful to him. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, some of his former clients or his prostitutes' clients would show up at the at my place in the lobby drunk saying, where's Sarah? I, what? Sarah and I are supposed to have an appointment. I was like, no, he his whole business is over there two blocks away now. Oh, no. Like, people in my lobby would say, like, what was that about? Like, you know, I didn't Don't have to Don't worry talk. about it. Just a mistake. So, that's how I got started. The, the hotel became, the Phoenix became a well-known rock and roll hotel. All kinds of celebrities ended up staying there. No, but it's a very bands. interesting the oh, way yeah. you figured that out. That and this is, is This is a great tip yeah. for anybody in business because as soon as I heard it, I said, Whoa, you have just magnified my speaking career exponentially. <laughs> because when you understand this, yeah. you understand everything wow. about creating a business. Wow, you've just set me up for disappointment here. Okay. Well, I, no, no, no. <laughs> Ex explain how you turned yeah. this place this where... The Air Motel into a famous rock and roll hotel. Well... So obviously we fixed it up, made it nicer, but we had a grand total of $200,000 for the renovation of the whole hotel, which isn't a lot. And it's not necessarily a neighborhood that, you know, musicians and bands would want to stay in. But I was very clear. I knew Bill Graham, who's a famous rock and roll promoter. And he said, Chip, you know, all these bands come to town, there's not a great place for them to stay. So I said, I'm going to go after musicians because most hotels don't really want the musicians because they feel like they'll trash the rooms. So I started talking to travel agents who handled musicians' travel. And that seemed like the natural place of who makes the decisions. But two months later, they weren't sending me much business. Then I started talking to the venues of where these guys are going to go play at Slim's or the Fillmore or the Great American Music Hall, famous venues in San Francisco, all of which were relatively close to my, my pay-by-the-hour motel or my former pay-by-the-hour motel, the, the Phoenix. But those guys didn't send me any business. And then what, I finally got somebody to stay in the hotel who was like, the, he was the tour manager for a band. And he had his band with him. And they, had a, they liked the hotel because there was a big parking lot there for their bus. And it was free bus parking. And so as I started to spend time with him, um, I, you know, I got to know him better. And I had decided that I had created, taken a room that had been the massage room and turned it into a legitimate massage room and offering massage to our guests. So I said to him, you know, you've brought us enough room nights. I would like to offer you a free massage. To the tour manager. The tour manager. So it's the tour manager. So let's be clear. The tour manager is usually five years older than the rest of the band. And they're the one whose job it is to make sure that the band doesn't like do an overdose or get hijacked by groupies. And so they're stressed out. And quite often they're on the bus with these guys all day long and, you know, they have shows every night. It's a hard job. So they're, I, I, you know, what I didn't realize is, my gosh, this tour manager is stressed. The, the tour manager is the one who makes the decision of where the band's going to stay. It's not these other people. 
if I could give each tour manager a free massage, as long as they brought us, you know, 10 room nights, five rooms times two nights, to my Phoenix hotel, then I might have a great marketing idea. Well, this first guy loved it. And so he told his friends. But back in that era, 1987, you don't no tell your internet. friends. There's no. no internet. There's no cell phones. So he would get on the house phone of the hotel or his guest room phone and call his friends. Or he sent out letters to people. So he ultimately gave the, me the names of the 100 tour managers in the United States. He had his friends. He had a list of them. And so I sent 100 letters to the tour managers offering them free massages. And lo and behold, the Phoenix became the Rock and Roll Hotel of San Francisco. And um, 32 years later, it still is the Rock and Roll Hotel of San Francisco. And so the, the takeaway here is find the tour manager. Yeah, the takeaway here is there's always someone who's the decision maker. Got to figure out who that person is. But then figuring out who that person is is only half of it. The other half is, what are you going to offer them that nobody else is offering them? Now, these tour managers have been offered all kinds of special rates and maybe free drink tickets and things like that. But nobody had ever said, you, the tour manager, you're a stress case. And the thing you need more than anything else is a massage. Right. And when you come to the Phoenix, you get a free massage. And probably when you get psychologically layers deeper, yes, it's more than the massage. It's this person cares about me. That's right, absolutely. This person knows that I'm stressed and they're gonna take care of me. Listen, you know, at most hotels, when the band checks in, you have to sign a damage waiver right. when you get there and the front desk is scared of you. I, I taught our, our hosts at the front desk that these are your friends. This, the band's your friends. You're here to actually make them feel at home as if they were staying in your own home. And so that in the combination with the, the, the free massage, meant that my first hotel got off to a great start. And, um, you know, 52 boutique hotels later, uh, you know, I was, I, I had to get out of there. But the, the truth is- Well, well yeah. you, 52, that's a major accomplishment here. You've Thank built you. up this huge chain. Yep. And one thing I forgot to include that you mentioned the first time yeah. we talked was that as a kid, you wanted to be a writer. I did. You, you, that was- At age 12, I said to my parents, I want to be a writer. My, my dad said, writers are either poor or psychotic or most or both. And I didn't know what psychotic meant at age 12, but it didn't sound very good. So I did everything I could to run away from being a writer. And then I became an entrepreneur and I started, you know, all these hotels and then people wanted me to give speeches. And then, then a, a literary agent approached me after hearing one of my speeches and said, you need to write a book. <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, I, you know, you got to talk to my parents. Uh, and I wrote a book called The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. And Richard Branson wrote the foreword to the book, and it became a successful book. And, uh, yeah, now I have my fifth book coming out. Okay, so I love this. You've basically been able to achieve your dream going through the back door. Yeah. And now, literally... We keep using the term top of your game, but you you are on the top of your game, even though the recession's coming. And then you have this flatline moment and your father can see. Yes. Okay, something's got to change. You know it inside. And you go through a, a process where you're basically going to say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm going to sell the chain. Yeah. And that's not that easy because of the timing. Yeah, it's not that easy for you know, two reasons. One is it's my identity. You know, your identity is like a name tag that you've put on a, a hairy-chested man. 
taking that name tag <laughs> off the hair, off of off of that that oh, oh that's you imagine that that's yeah, painful. Yeah. And so, uh, in many ways, your identity and mine being an entrepreneur since age 26 of starting this company and being the face of the company, et cetera, that was not easy. And then, frankly, I was going to be selling the company for almost nothing. What? But, yeah, I was going to be selling the company for very little money because in the bottom of the recession, nobody wanted a company like this. I was selling the management company and the brand. I was not selling any of the real estate because I did own a bunch of hotels, but all of them with partners. And none of my partners wanted to sell in the bottom of the market. So the management company and the brand is is the organization that ran the businesses and had the 3,500 employees. That's what I needed to get out of. And so I ended up selling it for not a lot of money. I mean, enough to be fine with, but if I'd waited, gosh, if I'd waited three or four years, I probably could have sold it for four times, five times as much money. But, but what I knew is I had had a flatline experience and I didn't want another one. <laughs> that, th this, is, this is the point. It's, it seemed like... You, you were in that situation that I described at the very beginning. You could either cling yes. to the past, wait for that time, that three or four years to pass, and then hopefully you cash in, or you can let go and say, where is life going to take me? Sometimes you actually have to make space in your life and see what shows up. I mean, whether that's the end of a relationship uh, or a marriage and saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to be single for a while and let's see how what shows up. Or it could be ending a career uh, or a particular job and saying, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a little bit of a sabbatical. Um, in my case, uh, I just knew that I didn't want to do what I was doing any, anymore. And I wanted to write a book. I did, I did that flatline experience taught me that I wanted to write my next book, which is my fourth book called Emotional Equations. Weirdly, that book turned into a New York Times bestseller. So it was like this sort of like a wink from the heavens looking at me and saying, you know what? I think you were supposed to actually leave your job, that, that leave your career. That little kid knew what he was doing. That's right. I think you're supposed to be a writer. And um, and so I did. So I, I wrote that book, Emotional Equations. It came out in 2012. Um, but then I had some space in my life again. And I figured, okay, I'm going to become a the world's leading expert in festivals. Uh, that was my next thing I was going to do. And that this hits such a sweet spot in my heart oh. because... yeah. I had the same dream. You wanted to be the world's leading expert in festivals? I, and I still do. I'm going to say it out loud now. Yes. I've harbored this for a long time because back in the day when I had this idea, my idea was to go to every festival in the world. Oh, well, that would take a few lifetimes. Yes. And the best. Yeah. I mean, okay, the best not, But you know what? Sometimes the little ones yeah, are the best. Most interesting ones. Are the best. Yeah. Yeah. But... I wanted to go around the world and hit every festival and write about it. Yeah. And so when you said that to me, I <laughs> felt a deep connection with you. Yes. And I, I get it. I get it. Because what's better than going around and seeing people celebrate? It's yeah. on their best days. Collective effervescence. There this you is, go. This is a term that came from Emil Durkheim, a sociologist from over 100 years ago. He was studying religious pilgrimages. And it's a beautiful term. Collective effervescence is when your, uh, your ego uh, and your sense of separation evaporates. And what comes in its place is this communal joy. It's part of the reason people go to Burning Man. Um, it's the bubbles in the champagne glass. It's all, yeah, it's the, it's, yeah, the effervescence, exactly. And so I, I did start that. I started 
going around the world. I went to the Kumbh Mela, Maha Kumbh Mela, 100 million people at the Ganges River oh, in man, India. Oh, man, I never got there. Yeah. Well, you still can. You still <laughs> I will. can. Every, I will. Every 12 years, they have I the will. big one. Um, and, you know, I went to New Orleans Jazz Festival and, you know, Telluride Film Festival and, of course, Burning Man. And, oh, oh, what was that one? The one in Siena. Uh, El Palio. El Palio. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, my God. That one was amazing. <laughs> you know, it just, oh, oh, yeah, you do That's know That's what I want to do. El Palio. That one, that was in my top I, five. I was just in Siena. It was right after oh, the, yeah. the race. But yeah, I, I'm going to get back July to that July 2nd and I think October 2nd or October 16th, you know, every year. Um, long story short, I was doing that. It was more of a passion project. This was not a business. Uh, created a website called Fest 300, the, and, and we had an annual list of the 300 best festivals. Is this still going? It or? is. It's actually merged with a company called Everfest. And so the Fest... I th- heard of Everfest. Everfest and the Fest 300 is... There's a Fest 300 list still on Everfest. So long story short is in early 2013, I got a call from a guy named Brian Chesky, who I really didn't know. I didn't know who he was. Um, he was a CEO and co-founder of a company called Airbnb. I didn't really know what Airbnb was uh, five and a half years ago. I had heard of them. I thought they were a subsidiary of Couchsurfing. I didn't really know they were this fast-growing tech company that was uh, opening up the idea of home sharing globally. So he said, I want you to be my in-house mentor, and I'd like to have you help us become a hospitality brand globally. Sounded great. He said, you know, will will you help me democratize uh, hospitality? And I love that. Democratizing hospitality and helping micro entrepreneurs open their homes, all that sounded good, but I'd never worked in a tech company. And how old are you now? I'm 52 at that time. And not tech savvy. Not tech savvy at all. I didn't, the average age at at Airbnb at that time was 26. It's twice the age, and I never worked in a tech company. It feels like me. I never used a Google <laughs> Doc. I, you know, I, I didn't. I'm at home, brother. Et cetera, et cetera. I, I, it was really awkward. And so I said yes, and then the first week I was uh, in a meeting in this with a bunch of engineers. It was just me and the engineers, and I was trying to be invisible because, like, I didn't know what they were saying. They were, like, talking a language I didn't understand. And then the 25-year-old wizard who was running the meeting turned to me, the, you know, the new red meat in the room and said, if you shipped a feature and no one used it, did it really ship? And I, I took philosophy in college. So I know about the tree in the forest and all <laughs> that stuff. singing your song. But the, I never didn't took any computer science. I don't know what even, what does it mean computer, to ship a feature? It, but that wasn't, a, that wasn't the question. It was a philosophical question. It was question. a philosophical question about the idea of a, co- a tech company um, sending out to their users some new feature, but nobody uses it. So, you know, do, do you start over and create a new feature is what he was saying. But I didn't know, I didn't know what it meant to ship a feature. So I just looked at him blankly and had this strange sort of blank stare on my face. And after that awkward silence, he mercifully moved on to someone else. And I wanted to be invisible. I didn't really want to be in that room. I felt like I, I was brought in to be the mentor I was and you can't in, even understand their language. And I'm the fucking intern, excuse me, but I'm the, <laughs> I don't even understand. Robert De Niro, you know, in uh, the movie The Intern with Anne Hathaway. I, the, the funny story with me and Robert De Niro, not as if we're friends, Bob and I don't go way back, but... Um, I go back with him, but uh, go ahead. Oh, that's right, you do. Go ahead, go ahead. That's so interesting. Well, so he was an intern. He was hired as a 70-year-old intern for the young CEO. I was hired as the mentor for a young CEO. I was the mentor who actually became the intern. 
He was the intern who became the mentor. So very interesting story there. Um, but but you know what? There's yeah. a circular nature to yeah. it. You, it's almost as if you can't be one without the other because if you're the mentor, you're watching somebody young yeah. and learning from, from their reactions. Yes. Yeah. So you 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 can't be a mentor without being an intern. You know, I call it being a mentor. Uh, you're a ma there mentor you and an intern at the same time. Now, I don't does the opposite apply? Can you be uh, an intern that has to you, you have to be a mentor because you're obviously passing on maybe you don't even know what you're passing on. If someone if your mentor is learning from you and I, I think a mentor is always learning from you. Then you're then a mentor. You are a mentor. That's right. That's right. So it's a symbiotic relationship. It's sort of the yin yang. You know, it's uh, you've, we've seen these diagrams of yin yang. It all, you know, one is the other. It, it, they all they're like you know jigsaw puzzle pieces that fit together. So once I got secure and comfortable, how long did that take you to it, feel secure around all these young people? This is people? where dad shows up again. My dad shows up. He's the one who said oh, I was like, oh. at age 12, don't write. <laughs> but then, you know, at age 47, he shows up when I die. What does he say this time? This time he says to me, and we're going off on a walk, a hike in the, the mountains, you know, near where he, he and my mom live in a sort of an, an, an active adult community, um, which is like a retirement home. Um, and he, he hears me talking with fear about like being, uh, like being dumb, being the dumbest person in the room. And what I, he also saw was I was sort of holding on to the past. I'd been the CEO of my own company for 20, almost 24 years. And so I was used to being the one with all the answers. And so he said to me, how can you turn your fear into curiosity? And it was that profound. What a question. Yeah, and my dad's not a particularly deep guy. I mean, let's yeah. just be honest. I love my dad, but he's not that deep. And on a hike, I felt like I had a backpack on this hike of 185 pounds of me in my backpack because I was carrying all of my past identities. And your ego. Feeling, and my ego, right. more than anything. My ego was, hey, I'm supposed to be, you know, the knowledgeable. I'm the smartest guy. That's I'm right. the, the wisest guy in the That's room. Right. I don't know about the smartest. That's but. right. So ultimately, he helped me to see maybe it's okay to be have a beginner's mind and be curious. And ultimately, I came up with a little phrase because someone said to me, uh, you're catalytically curious. And I love alliteration. So catalytically curious was his way of saying to me, not my dad, but somebody in a room after I'd asked a bunch of questions in a meeting, some of them really stupid questions, but two or three profound questions that helped Airbnb early on in my time there see some of our blind spots. But I, if I had tried to be the know-it-all in the room, I probably wouldn't have asked those questions. But the fact that I actually was the old guy in the room, but asking a lot of questions shifted the energy for a lot of people in the room because the room was full of young people all trying to be know-it-alls, all trying to actually one-up each other in terms of, you know, how much, how, how smart they were. And sometimes the thing that actually creates a space for people to learn is not for someone to serve up the answers to you like Google can, but it's to have someone serve up the beautiful question. And the way that it's served up. That's right. Uh, there's something called appreciative inquiry, which is a, a, a way of asking questions that's empathetic and helps open up thinking to new ideas. But even the words that you use to start a question. Why or what if? 
why and what if questions are like what four-year-olds ask. But as you become older, and especially if you're a senior leader in a company, you ask what and how questions, because those are optimization questions. What and how are we going to do it? Why and what if questions are sort of like the kind of questions that slow down the process. They're like, you know, sometimes childish questions, but they can, if you ask them in an empathetic way, they can actually help people to see, oh, we have been thinking the only way we could do it was this way, but why or what if we tried something different? And I think that helped uh, Airbnb, a, a fast-growing company that hadn't really asked itself some important questions. Um, I ended up becoming the, the chief question asker. That's, well, coming from a question answer, it, yeah. it almost brings tears wow, to you, my eyes. You and I are separated at birth. <laughs> we have, we'll have to go to some festivals and ask some questions. There, there um, you go. That's going to be the end of this. But the beautiful thing about this process is it seems like by remaining who you are, you've completely turned yourself into a different kind of person. Well, if you believe that you can evolve, let's, let's start by saying if you don't think you can evolve, you're in the process of dying. <laughs> because I think evolution, and I'm not talking evolution Darwinian here, like, you know, as a species, I'm talking about us as humans. We're meant to, to change and evolve and get be different. And there was a time in our life when we couldn't walk, and then we learned how to walk. And the problem for a lot of us is once we get to adulthood, there's almost this sense that, you know, uh, I'm not learning anymore, or I'm not changing anymore, or I'm not evolving anymore. And we're locked in because we're in the same job. That's right. That's forcing us to stay in that place. And everybody sees us that way. And for some people, it's it's their own internal being stuck with that name tag. And for uh, in other and, cases... And people love that name tag. People are used to the name tag, and they don't want you to change the name tag. And you know, when I uh, sold Joie de Vivre and had to move on, it was incredibly hard for my team. I was okay with it. I had had a flatline experience two years earlier. I had molted my identity over the next two years to the point of like, when it finally got publicly announced almost two years after my flatline, I was ready to move on. But for a lot of people, they're not ready for you to move on. Um, and, you know, people think of themselves as, I am a doctor, or I am a, you know, a teacher, or I am a fill in the blank. Um, I am a mom. All your sense of confidence. Yeah. I mean, if you're a mom, imagine if you're a mom and, and your primary thing that you've done in your adulthood is to have four kids and now you're an empty nester and they have all left home. I'm looking at my wife as you say that. That identity shift is so hard. And yet, you know, you know what I'm going to say here. We as a culture, society has historically been really good about noticing when people are going through transition and then creating the kinds of rites of passage or celebrations to help people. Puberty, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, quinceanera. Um, you're gonna get, you're gonna, you're actually gonna graduate and go from being an adolescent to an adult. You have a commencement ceremony yeah. and you, you know, and then yes, you're gonna get married and you're gonna get, have a wedding. You have a baby, you have a bridal shower and then you die and you have a funeral, but between bridal shower <laughs> and funeral, there's nada, 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 nada. And so- And we, that's why this conversation is so important. We, we're entering that void for all these people who, in some way, even if they're at the top of their game, they may be stuck. Cal, it's, the part that's scary here is, is that we have, you know, so the lo average longevity in the United States in the year 1900 was 47 years old. 
by 2000, it was 77. So we added 30 years of life to the average person during one century. By 1965, um, something called midlife crisis had been coined, that term, um, by a psychologist, because midlife was a new phenomenon. It didn't have any rites of passage because, frankly, at, in year, the year 1900, midlife was probably 23 years old. So 53 years ago, midlife crisis was coined. We have done zero in half a century to create rites of passage around midlife or to recognize that people go through transitions, whether it's changing their career, getting divorced, having an empty nester syndrome, all of having menopause. All of these things happen. I yeah, mean, I've never heard of a menopause celebration. There's not, you know, in, for people who are sort of in the pagan world, they do things like that. Um, but the, for, the, for the average, you know, Joe or, or Jane, they don't. And, and so... And, and it's basically treated in silence. It's treated in or silence. Or maybe if you have a, a good friend that you could confide in. If you're, a, if you're a woman, you may have a collection of women that you can talk to about it. If you're a man, you man up and you don't talk about it. And this is the sad part about why, you know, suicide in, uh, for men in their 40s and 50s is rampant, partly because there's really a lot of transition happening during that time. People feel m more and more irrelevant um, and they don't have anybody to talk to about it because, you know, men... I, I just heard this amazing fact, Chip. Uh, Radha Agrawal just wrote a I book called... I love her. I, we're, she and I are doing a book party, party in New York on oh, Tuesday. Oh, I wish you were going to be there. Man. Oh, my God. Oh, Belong. She and I are doing a party on Tuesday, <laughs> literally. I was supposed to be there, and <laughs> it didn't work out. But she told me this fact that one in four Americans do not have a friend that they can confide in. Well, that's actually, I would say it's bigger than that. That seems one in four. That's actually, that seems- that, That's a good number to I you. think that's a good number, yeah. Oh, no. No, I think it's- But th this is really serious when you, because- I would it, say that's one in two men then. Because wow. I'd say almost all women have someone to confide in. So I would say it's one out of every two men don't have that. That that's probably the part that I would suggest. Well, men may have had always had trouble conf confiding. You know that quote that you cite from Thoreau uh, about quiet desperation, living yeah. a life of quiet desperation. Uh, it seems it seems now we're having an openness, partly for the internet, even though it's closing us down. Yeah, it is opening us yeah. up to making these kind of changes. And here, I got this brother, my brother, late 50s. Uh, he just left his job that he'd been in for more than two decades, and now he can do anything. And after talking to you, I call him up and I'm saying, you know, why don't you look for a company of young people? And it doesn't have to do with anything that you've done in the past. It's just the wisdom you've accumulated. I, and I told him, get Chip's book, <laughs> read it. Because just looking at life that way, you may realize that you're gonna go to a whole new terrain. And not only that, but the, these, the young people, I know this from my own experience, mm -hmm. they are searching thirsty for yeah. older people to become what used to be uh, this world of apprenticeships yeah. in, in, you know, way back, way, way back. And now that 
we're moving so quickly as a society that I don't even think we really have a structure for a lot of these young people to have an older person say, look, this is kind of the way it's done. Yeah, well, I think, or this, well, I would, I would, the way you just said it, I would be cautious about that only to say, this is the way it used to be done. And there's something to be learned from that, and it is evolving. Because it may not work anymore. That's right, exactly. So, so here, I think, you know, let's be, let's be clear about what it means to be what I call a modern elder. It is not about the traditional elder of the past who was held in reverence. It is about relevance. And relevance means that you are able to use maybe timeless wisdom and apply it to modern-day problems and modern-day issues. And sometimes that requires you as a modern elder to be the intern as much as the mentor, which means you need to be curious and wise. So why I say all that is because I have had lots of people my age, I'm about to turn 58, um, say to me, thank God you're going out and reminding the young that they should be holding us in reverence. We have wisdom that they need to be listening to. And I almost like imagine this person thinking that you're going to- They're not, they're not getting your message. Yeah, you're going to line everybody up and they're all going to be sitting on their on, on little stools. And well, it's this is not school. This is not this is not you at a pulpit in a church speaking to the, the, you know, the, the teenagers. This is absolutely you being willing to evolve enough so that you're relevant to that younger person. And then once you have become relevant, they wanna hear from you. Otherwise you are their parent and they don't wanna to listen to you at all. And, and you know what, I apologize because I phrased it wrong when I said that. Because generally the way I would approach anything is with questions. Yes. So when I say this is how it's done, it would be done through a series of questions that would lead the person wherever they needed to go. Yep, yeah. Uh, but having that older person there to ask the questions and then to say, well, I've seen this happen. I've yeah. seen that happen. Right. And that allows the younger person to gain yes, very much. years of experience in an anecdote. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong. So, let's just, so for those who are taking notes here and will say, like, how am I going to do this? Very fine for you to talk about your history and your lessons. Because the, you know, the, the fact you skinned your knee at age 25 in your first you know, job out of college and you did a bad job and you learned something from it, that may help this person listening to you not skin their knee. So there's that level of, you know, they, how did you get such good judgment from a lot of bad judgment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, a lot of that is being able to pass on your mistakes. That's right. So the younger people won't make them. That's right. So at 75% of millennials in three different polls have said they would like to have a mentor. So for those of us who think, okay, men, you know, those millennials, they know it all. Like they don't want to, they don't want to listen to older people. Well, they don't want to listen to their parents often. Sometimes they do, but mostly they don't want to listen to their parents, but they do want to listen to wisdom. Wisdom is making a comeback. And wisdom is making a comeback because the faster power is cascading to the young because of our growing reliance on digital intelligence, DQ. The, it, whatever scarce in society is valuable. And scarcity in a, in, a, in a situation where power is going to the young, scarcity is wisdom. And it's not to say that old people are, have all the wisdom and young people don't. Wisdom, frankly, can, it, it's all about harvesting it. Um, and there's a lot of older people who don't have much wisdom. And I don't call them elders necessarily or modern elders. They're, in many cases, they're elderly. Um, but the truth is that a young person, when they can feel the presence 
of somebody listening to them. You know, the thing I, I gave a talk at, at the, with the Summit Group. Um, in fact, that's where I saw Kevin in, in Utah. Um, Kevin! Yes, I do love that, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a great guy. Great energy. We get to talk about Rumi stuff because he's Persian. But so I was in Utah, and right before I was giving my talk on wisdom to a bunch of people Kevin's age, mostly in their 30s, there was an owl outside, an eagle owl. I never knew that there was a certain kind of owl called an eagle owl. And so I was talking to the guy who was, who was caring for the eagle owl, and the eagle owl was on my arm at one point. And I said, so what makes the owl the wise animal in the forest? And he said, it's because the owl is the best listener, has the best attuned listening. That speaks to what wisdom is. Knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. And wisdom listens means you're present. And we live in an era where we all have our smartphones and therefore we're not all that present for each other. So when a young person, and let's say a young person is 15 years younger than you. I mean, a young person to me could be 42 years old. That's 15 years younger than me. I'm 57. That person younger than me, when they actually see that you are listening to them, and Cal, you, you listen so well, when someone's listening to you, it's a unique experience. When someone has wisdom, it's a unique experience. And when you are offering something that's scarce, it has value. And that really, I think, defines the, the world we're in today. But no one has been sort of elevating the value of wisdom until maybe, you know, I mean, certainly Socrates did a long time ago. But in the current era, I'm doing my best with this new book, Wisdom at Work. Uh, and you're doing something else. You got land in Mexico. Yes. And you've created a, a retreat. What, what would you it's call it? The, it's a, well, it's, it's called the actual brand name is the Modern Elder Academy. But I think it's a when new you category. Say academy. Yeah, it's a school. I, it is a school. It's a school. Yeah. No. So a couple of thoughts. So um, forty years ago, we're in LA. Forty years ago, an LA real estate developer um, was unhealthy. His name is Mel Zuckerman, and he was unhealthy, and he wanted to go to a spa. Now, forty years ago, men didn't go to spas very much. Um, but 40 years ago, he went to a spa. So he went to the Golden Door and to Rancho La Puerta and a place called the Oaks. And it was almost all women. And he said, why isn't there a, a, like a spa that's got more fitness in it and got health, health regime and things like that? So he created a place called Canyon Ranch. Canyon Ranch in Tucson became the category for a destination spa resort. What I'm trying to do 40 years later is create the category of the Midlife Wisdom School. And my property is called the Modern Elder Academy. And it is a school. And people come uh, from all over the world. It just opened the first half of this year in a beta period. And now it opens to the public this November. Um, and they come and they spend a week or two weeks long with between 12 and 18 other people uh, in their cohort, same age, so, you know, mid, mid, you know, midlife. And they learn how to repurpose themselves. They learn how to actually mine their mastery to see where their wisdom is. And they learn how to, frankly, get vulnerable about what transitions they're going through with people who are complete strangers. Oh, my God, Cal, it's been phenomenal. We had 153 people go through the beta program. Uh, it was half men, half women. Men had an even more profound women experience than women, partly because they were more parched in terms of being thirsty for being able to talk about going through a transition. And so, uh, yeah. Now, do you bring in young people? We do to... bring in sometimes young people. Um, we bring in young people to sort of talk about intergenerational collaboration. Um, and we even have young people in some of the workshops as, as part of the cohort. 
I believe that middle mid, middle age used to be 30, uh, 45 to 65, and now it's 35 to 75 because a lot of people feel irrelevant at 35, especially in the technology world. And people are going to work till they're 75 because they're going to live till they're 100. And for some people, you know, you can't afford to retire, uh, you know, at, at the normal retirement age of 65. So we have people, I have in the first week of the program, we have a 31-year-old junior elder from Kenya whose tribe is actually sending her to, um, uh, to Mexico, to the academy, um, and she's going to be part of the cohort. Um, so, so normally we wouldn't have people b below 35, but in her case, we made a special uh, accommodation because she is a junior elder. And she wanted to come over and learn what does it mean to be a modern elder. And so I'm sure she'll teach a lot because, you know, African society has had a long history of right. having, you know, respect for elders. Um, but again, this is not about reverence and respect. It really is about remaking the idea of what does it mean to be an elder in the modern society. Well, I got to say, if there's one place that I'd love to overlap with you, it's at the academy mm. because I'm really thinking about what people are going to need five and 10 years down the road in order to reinvent themselves. It's becoming really clear that reinvention is one of the most important things we need to learn because this world is just Changing, changing quick, so fast, faster and faster. Yeah. And so you need to not only be able to reinvent yourself once, but it's almost as if reinvention needs to be taught as a skill, a way of thinking. Let me tell you a story because I think um, when people hear reinvention, they get scared sometimes. It means, oh my God, I have to be something completely different than who I am today. Not always. Here's a story. My friend Mike Riley and I went to, to, to college together. We were in fraternity. His father was the head of the PGA, Professional Golfers Association. So he's from a very solid golfing family. He's from Los Angeles originally. He played golf at Stanford on the, on the golf team. And then he went to work for a company called IMG out of college. And it's this big sports management company. And he was in the golf division. What a surprise. And so he grew in that division, became a sports agent for golfers, then helped you know create golf courses and basically helped create new golf tournaments. and. For 20 years, he became one of the experts in the world on the golf profession. And one of his jobs was to take people who were later in their career as a professional golfer and help them figure out what's next for them. So if you're a golfer in your early 40s and you don't want to professionally golf anymore, what do you do? Well, you you design golf courses or you, you know, license your name for clothing or you go out and give speeches or write books or whatever. That's what Mike did. At his 20th anniversary, he got fired because the uh, guy who started uh, IMG, Mark McCormick, died. The company got sold to a private equity company. Mike was a highly paid person, and the private equity company was figuring out how to cut, you know, cut costs. So right. Mike had to leave, and he got a good severance package, so he got to think about what's next for him. So he thought, okay, I'm a, I'm a golf expert, but, I, but like, where am I gonna use that in the world, especially since all the golf expertise is in this company, that they, they don't want me anymore. So he went and decided to go back and get his master's in sports management, thinking, okay, sports in general would be good. And he was a 45-year-old going to a place where most of the people getting a master's in sports management were 25. Good for him to do that. And it sounds a little like your experience at Airbnb. It was, exactly. A lot of similar to that. But yet, 
when he started to then teach sports management, he decided he liked teaching. Well, um, it didn't feel quite right for him. It felt like it wasn't exactly his mastery. It took him 12 years, to, or actually 10 years, to finally figure out that his mastery from all that time at IMG as being a sports agent was career counseling. His, his mastery of what he'd gotten really good at is taking people in midlife or you know early 40s often, late 30s, early 40s, and help them to see what they could do next. So now he's the CEO of UC Berkeley's executive education program. Now, if you'd said to him 10 or 12 years ago, <laughs> oh, it would have been impossible. He would not, he would like say, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. But his mastery, so this is the point. He reinvented himself, but he reinvented himself because if you look at what he was doing, he was a sports agent, and now he's the CEO of a UC Berkeley executive education, which is primarily focused on people in midlife going out and getting a business degree to actually remake themselves. There's a huge change in, in what he was doing in terms of what his business card looks like. But in terms of what his skill was, same thing. It was the same thing. So sometimes the reinvention is it's, literally getting clear on what you've gotten spectacularly great at that wouldn't necessarily even show up on your resume. It's really about being able to stop and look inside of yourself, which bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation, when you had that flatline moment, yeah. basically you were grabbed by the lapels and said, look inside yourself. And the cool thing about your story was for your dad to be able to look at you and say, it's time for something new. Yeah. But you know what? The beauty of your book, the beauty, you know what? You call it an academy. I, I see it with like margaritas and tequila oh, as, a as a retreat. We have that too, for sure. The beauty of your retreat uh, is, no, I'll call it an academy. That's the, beauty, the beauty of your academy with margaritas is that it's just going to stop everybody for a second. Just the mere notion of that this exists, this book exists, this academy exists, it just enables everybody to take a minute in their life mm -hmm. and say, who where am I? Where am I going? Who am I right now? You did this. I've done this many, many times. Yeah. And you know what? Going back to the beginning of the conversation, every time, I, I never flatlined, but there was always some big moment that made me get to the point of saying, do I want to cling here and hang on to this for as long as I can? Or do I want to let go? And every time, I let go. And so I, you know what, the more I'm talking, I feel very comfortable in this area. It's scary. I mean, just like falling in love is scary, but, but, the, but what we're talking about here is falling. There's an element of falling. There's an element of letting go. It's like being, it's like being that acrobat or that um, circus performer on the trapeze. And you have to, in order to get to the other trapeze over there, you actually have to let go of that one that you've got right here. And then, fly through the air to get the other one. And thankfully, life is not quite that complex or that acrobatic uh, or that, you know, you've got a safety net. Um, but part of life sometimes is falling. The idea of letting go of something and falling a little bit in order to find what's next. And, you know, that's... You just so beautifully described everything we've just spent talking about over the last hour. 
And I don't even know if you understand how beautiful that was to me because we are overlooking the beach in Santa Monica and there are rings out on this oh. beach. If you go out and yeah. you look, you'll yeah. see there's a long row of rings that are attached mm -hmm. uh, at the top only to go from one ring to the next, you have to sort of fly. Yes. From and this is where this is what I'm doing now. I You're am kidding. literally I am learning. At sixty one. Yes. Oh, I love it. I, I am learning to go fly through the air, ring after ring. Yeah. It's uh, it's sort of like the Sia song chandelier. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, it. But I love that you were able to put these analogies. Mm -hmm. into almost cinematic yeah. places so that people could take that moment in their own life and ask themselves these questions. All right, I'm on the trapeze here. Where do I want to go? Where is that other trapeze yeah. flying at me that I got to grab? And if one person somewhere in Mongolia hears this and figures out their trapeze, I think that this last hour was an enormous success. Thank you. But for me, it was just beautiful. I, I feel like I made a new friend. I didn't yes. never realize that we had this huge overlap yes. from festivals to reinvention. And I look forward to picking up your book on Tuesday. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cal. I mean, I, you know, it's a, I appreciate what you're doing for the world. You know, and how you have uh, reinvented yourself in a way that is making good in the world. So, thank you. This really feels like the place to be right here with All right. you. All right. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I hope the takeaways in this episode will allow you to take your life to great new places. And there's a lot more takeaways in Chip's new book, Wisdom at Work, the making of a modern elder. So check it out. The more I think about it, maybe the smartest course of action is to have someone older at one side and someone younger at another. Now that's a winning trifecta. Let me close by thanking Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start this podcast, one of the best decisions I ever made. I want to thank all of you who send along photos of where you listen to big questions cities, towns. Every new photo is a symbol of this growing community, a community that I can actually drop in on when I'm passing through to clink some glasses. I hope to one day clink glasses with all of you. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.